Pastor Eric is continuing his sermon series in the book of Revelation, so I invite you to please take your Bibles and turn with me to our lesson this morning, which is Revelation chapter 6. If you are in need of a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of those Red Pew Bibles in front of you and follow along as I read. Once again, Revelation chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out in a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by, by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black, like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs dropped from the fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? This is the word of the Lord. All right, first up, kids, you are dismissed to worship kids style. The adults, as the kids head out, let's pray together. God and Father, pray that you would be with us now as we come to your word. Teach us through it, instruct us, and help us to grow in love for you and service to you. Be with all of us, even though we're sinful, as we sit under your word. Be with me, even though I am sinful, as I preach it. Pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. 
So as we move into Revelation 6, I have to start with a kind of confession that I've been waiting, waiting to make, which is this. We started Revelation like two months ago, and um, as I've talked with a lot of people, I mean, we talked back then about how Revelation is perceived as this book that's full of all this like scary, weird, impossible to understand stuff, and how it doesn't have to be that way, and it's good for the church and things. And over the last two months as we've been preaching through it, I've had a bunch of people say like, oh, this has been really good, Eric, and Revelation isn't scary at all, and there's no hard stuff. And on the one hand, I want you to keep that attitude, right? I'm not, I'm not saying don't stop feeling that way. But I have also felt guilty throughout that time because if you made an outline of like what the easier and harder to interpret parts of Revelation are, probably Revelation 1 through 5 and 21 and 22 are the easier part, and then Revelation 6 through 20 has a lot of the challenging stuff. So I don't say that to scare you away. This is still God's word. There's still a lot of good stuff there. But I do say that up front to acknowledge, first of all, that this chapter and some of the chapters that come after it will have some challenging imagery and things for us to discuss. And I also say that because before we dive into Revelation 6, I want to kind of spell out for us two things that I think that I'm operating from about how to read Revelation that will form some of what we say. And I know when we do this up front, some of you will be really excited about this and some of you will not be. And if you're in the second group, Bear with it for a few minutes, and then we're going to talk about this text and applying it to our lives and things. But I want to spell out two assumptions that I have as we read through the book of Revelation that will lie in the background, and that if you're trying to think through how to interpret it, might be helpful first. The first of those assumptions, um, I get asked a lot as a pastor, actually. I get asked things like, do you think that it's the end times, Pastor Eric? Do you think we're living in the last days? With a certain, usually kind of enthusiastic glint in people's eyes. And my answer to that question is always in two parts. My answer is, first of all, yes, absolutely, these are the last days. However, that's true, we're living in the end times because it has been the last days since the time of Jesus. Which is not, I think, what the person asking that question necessarily means. Um, just to spell that out, a lot of Christians, a lot of people, I think, view Christian history like this. They think there's the Old Testament, and then there's Jesus, and then there's this kind of, like, church time that we're in, and then at some point something happens, or some set of things happen, and we, like, flip over, and then we're in the last days and the end times, and then Jesus comes back. Um, but I think in Scripture that instead it looks like this, that there's the former days, which is what is referred to as a time before Jesus in the Bible, and then there's Jesus, and then after that is the time that would be referred to in Scripture as the latter days, or the last days. And so we are in that period now, but we have been for the last 2,000 years. So some of us might be like, really? I've never heard that before. So let me show you that from a few different places in the Bible, okay? First of all, from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews starts like this. First in verse 1 it says, Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then here's the contrast. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So the book of Hebrews says there's these former days, and then the last days, which we are in, which are the days after Jesus. Or Paul, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he says this. He says, but understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. 
where people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. He keeps going like that for another verse and a half, but this long list of these bad people. And, I mean, and sometimes you'll hear, like, TV preachers be like, yeah, look at all these people. This must be the last days, which is true. But this is Paul's application to Timothy. He says to Timothy, avoid such people. Which is to say, these people that exist in the last days, right, that you need to avoid them. So clearly, and in fact, he then goes on to instruct Timothy in what it looks like to live faithfully in these last times that we live in. Um, and that's, again, Paul and Timothy 2,000 years ago. Or one more from Matthew 24. Um, this one, Matthew 24 and 25, are another one of those challenging to interpret parts of the Bible. But Jesus talks about these signs um, of the la- that the last days are upon us. And there's wars and rumors of wars and all of that. And again, people will often point to the headlines today and be like, look, look at these things going on. But Jesus, in summing that up, says in Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Um, And I would just suggest that maybe Jesus means that. Not that the end has come in his, you know, for this generation, but that as he speaks to these hearers back in the first century about the signs that the last days are upon us, he's saying, and you're going to experience the beginning of that. All right. So that is the first idea we need to interpret. And the reason that that's one of the core ideas we're going to have to talk about is because that lies in the background of how, as we work through Revelation, we're going to apply a lot of its visions to us, right? What we're going to be saying is that parts of Revelation are describing the sort of like end times that lead up to Jesus, and we ought to recognize those things in our lives and in our world, but not because suddenly, uniquely, they're just starting to happen, but rather because those things have characterized the world and are characteristic of the state of the world as we anticipate Jesus's return and have been since the time of Jesus's ascension into heaven. All right, that's one assumption. Second one that I want to spell out, because people will otherwise maybe ask question, is that Revelation is a book that runs in cycles. It has this set of visions, and the way that I'm going to be interpreting the middle part of Revelation is that it's a set of cycles of visions. Which is to say, here in chapter 6, when we get into it in a couple minutes, you'll notice that the way I interpret it is as the first four seals are, really the first five seals are describing sort of this age, the kind of this last day's age that we live in and that it is true of our lives and will be true until Jesus comes back. And then the sixth seal, um, I am going to interpret as Jesus' return in the final judgment. And likewise, when you get to like Revelation 8, um, with the trumpets, I'm going to interpret the trumpets as being about this age, and then the last trumpet as being about God's return. And we're going to do that again later. And I'm pointing that out now because I think if you don't have that assumption, what we all intuitively do is that we read the visions of Revelation chronologically, which is to say we're like, well, all the stuff in Revelation 6 happens, and then after that, all the stuff in Revelation 7, and then after that, all the stuff in Revelation 8. And there's a lot of reasons I don't think that's the way to approach this part of the book, but let me just show one of them to you for this morning so that you can be thinking about it. Back in Revelation 4, we had this image of God's throne room, and we got this description of the presence of God. It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Now, if you remember back in Revelation 4, I said that language is actually going to become important as we go through Revelation. Let me just read you three other parts of Revelation. Starting in Revelation 8, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Revelation chapter 11, 
Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Revelation 16. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. All right. Those all probably sounded similar, because they are. And you have two options when you see that. Option one is to think that that same thing happened four different times, right? (laughs) You know, that in this sort of like chronological account, this exact same thing is four different events. Or option two, which makes a lot more sense, especially given that it uses exactly the same language, is that this is describing the same thing, right? And as we get to it, what I'm going to say is it's describing as God's presence coming to earth and God, you know, returning to, to dwell, you know, to dwell in power on earth. And so each of them is kind of like the capstone of a set of visions that are a cycle. Again, like we said, some of you right now are not interested in that. And some of you wish that we could keep talking about that stuff. We're going to transition from that. But I want you to have those two ideas in the back of your head. Because for some of you especially, as you dig into Revelation yourself and try to think about and interpret it, which is good, and I really want you to do, those will hopefully help make sense of the way we're approaching it. With that said now, let's talk about this vision of Revelation 6 and these six seals. I'm going to suggest that we learn three things from these six seals that are broken. And the first thing that we're supposed to learn is that God is sovereign over evil. God is sovereign. He rules even over evil. If you start in verse 1, it says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. All right. Just a reminder, in Revelation 5, we have the seal, the scroll, sorry, that represents God's plan of salvation and judgment with seven seals, and it's given to the Lamb, and now he's starting to break the seals. And if you didn't connect the dots from the scripture reading, This passage and these first four seals are what in the popular imagination became the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Like when you when you see that imagery, this is where that's coming from. So what's going on? Well, this first seal, this first horseman, there are a lot of interpretations of. Interestingly, probably the most common historical interpretation was that this horseman represents Jesus. And it's true that he's riding on a white horse with a crown, and that I mean I'm half like I'm not going to agree with that, but there's actually a lot to recommend that possible interpretation. Um, Some people also viewed it as the Antichrist. But I think, given that the other three horsemen are clearly negative events happening, that probably we're supposed to view this first horseman negatively, too. And in that case, what he probably represents um, is something like um, empire and imperial war. So John is living life under the oppression of the Roman Empire, right? He's in prison by the Roman Empire, and the churches that he's ministering to are facing that. And this image of this kind of great conquering force, right, that wages war and conquers the world would have talked about Rome. And then for us, more broadly, as we live in this same kind of world, it's just a description of war and conquest and nations that are oppressing and waging war against each other. Then there's a second horse. Out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword— Now, in the popular imagination, this is actually the horse that is war. 
but it seems like it's not just war that John has in mind, but all kind of strife between human beings, the kind of just violence and harm that human beings do to each other. And probably specifically for John, he's thinking about persecution, right? When all peace is removed and neighbors are turning against each other and doing violence to each other and hurting each other, he's, you know, in prison and speaking to these churches that are experiencing society turning against them and their friends and neighbors turning against them. So civil strife. Then a third horseman. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. So again, in the popular imagination, this horse is famine, right? That's if you, you know, if you look at the kind of like book illustration things. Um, and that's certainly part of it, that, that um, quart of wheat for a denarius, three quarts of barley, that's like 10 times what you would normally pay, right? It's like a loaf of bread for $40 or something like that is what, is what he's declaring. So part of it's famine. But then the other part of it, he says, but do not harm the oil and wine, which again, those are luxury goods, right? Wheat and barley are what you need just as a poor kind of peasant to, you know, to get your food for the day. But the oil is actually what you bathed in back then, which is, ask me about that sometime. It's interesting. Um, wine, right? Like, you know, fine wine. It's, those are the pictures of the rich things, and those things are not more expensive. So it's sort of famine, but also just the sort of economic injustice where these poor people can't get bread, but, you know, things are set up so that those who want the oil and wine are able to prosper. And then the last horseman, I looked and behold a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So the first, first three horsemen bring these sort of ills, right? War, civil strife, famine, and injustice to the world. And then the fourth horseman is the death that results from all of those problems. That sounds like our world, right? That, you know, you, you think about that and you're like, oh man, I can think about the newspaper headlines and identify all those things happening. That sounds like John's world, right? That sounds like the reality of the world that we live in. And that's really the point of these first four horsemen. They represent the kind of brokenness of our world and the hardships that we face in it, right? The, the ways that this world is messed up and wrong. Neighbor turns against neighbor. Nations war against each other. The rich have it good and the poor get the short end of the stick. That is all a reality of our experience of the world. But here is the point of these first four horsemen, right? Um, look back at verse 1 again. This is what I think John wants us to learn. First he says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. Which is to say the reason this is happening in each of these horsemen is because the Lamb breaks the seal on God's plan of judgment and salvation, and therefore the horsemen comes out. And in case you have any doubt about what that's supposed to mean, for each of the seals, one of the living creatures around God's throne, right? The sort of like, you know, highest, most exalted creatures in this courtroom of God, they say, come, or come out to the horsemen. And it's, it's a command. It's an imperative. They're giving the order to the horsemen and calling it forth onto the earth, which is the point of these four seals. That God is ultimately the one who is in control even of these four horsemen and the destruction that they're bringing. And that the results of their work are, in a sense, in part, a result of God's purpose of judgment and salvation in the world. Um, he's saying, in essence, look around, right? You see all these things that are messed up about the world. And they are messed up, 
But what you need to understand is that even those things are ultimately under God's rule um, as part of his plan for judgment and salvation. He is sovereign even over these evil things. Now, when we hear that idea, I know we have a lot of questions. So let's just talk about that. There's three things, biblically, you've got to say about God and evil. Three things. One is that God does not do evil, right? He is not, as some theologians put it, the author of evil. Um, James says, God cannot be tempted with evil. He himself tempts no one. Which is to say, God is not a sort of amoral force who's, you know, like, well, good and evil, whatever, it's all the same to me, right? God is good, and he is opposed to evil. That's the first thing we always have to say biblically about God and evil. Second, God is grieved by evil. Not only is he good in scripture, but he's also portrayed as hating and being grieved by the reality of the evil and brokenness of the world. He weeps with those who are oppressed and battered down, um, and he is opposed to evil, and he came as Jesus, in fact, to suffer under evil, right? And die himself under the pain of evil to overcome it. That's the second thing that's true in scripture. But also in scripture, those things are true, and God is also sovereign over evil is ultimately in control of all things. Um, These horsemen are only released because God says, come. Job, facing the loss of everything he owns and the death of his family, asks the question, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And in case we think Job at that point is mistaken, the author immediately then inserts, and in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He recognizes that the suffering he's facing in some sense is under God's rule. Or listen to how God says it through the prophet Isaiah. He says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Or Jeremiah, who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? So in scripture, God is not the author of evil, and he does not delight in evil or think that it's good, but he is sovereign over all things, including evil. While evil is evil and God hates it, God does also work in and through it his good purposes in the world. And it is not outside of his control. Joseph explains it to his brothers famously like this. He says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is actually a major theme going to see in the book of Revelation, that while there are these evil forces in the world that oppose God and seek to set themselves up against God, that God is the one who is ultimately sovereign and in control. Even over them, his rule extends. Let me just speak very personally for a minute about why we need that to be true. Um, As we have wrestled with Elizabeth's cancer, I feel like this is a topic we've had a lot of conversations with people about. And it seems... To, to me, to both of us, really, that what a lot of people want to say initially is that, um, is that it's some kind of accident outside of God's control, or that the only way that God could be at work is if he's going to sort of miraculously heal Elizabeth, right? <laughs> you know, that if those things don't happen, that somehow it must be an accident, so, you know, that outside of God's control and providence. And here's the problem with that attitude. It solves one problem. It does help us in one way, which is it helps us with our bitterness and questions and doubts about God, right? Like, I mean, it does kind of let God off the hook to be like, well, you know, you just, he wishes it wasn't this way, but I guess there's nothing he could do about it. But um, 
while it does that, it also destroys the tools we need to walk through that kind of suffering in a way that's actually good and leads to flourishing. And the reason for that is that it makes that suffering purposeless. It makes that suffering meaningless. If God is in control, then even in the the horrible, hard parts of life, there is still the hope for good and purpose and meaning to be there. God does not say, again, that, that, that it's good, right? It's not that that somehow makes the evil good, but it is the place that, um, that God is at work in such a way that he will carry us through that evil and that he can work beauty and flourishing in and through it in such a way that we recognize that even those broken areas of life can ultimately be used for his glory and praise because he is sovereign over them. If God is not in control, then even though that sort of lets him off the hook, and even though people like to dress it up kind of pretty, what we're ultimately saying is that really it just boils down to, like, sucks for you (laughs) that it happened, right? You know, the the dice got rolled and you got snake eyes. Sorry. Um, But if God is sovereign, then we have a real hope that God is at work, even in the midst of the world's brokenness, in a way that can bring beauty and and life and healing. So that's the first thing we learn, that God is sovereign over evil. But that said, if that's all we hear, there's also a tension that we feel. And so hold that tension maybe you're feeling in your heart. Because the second thing we see in this text, in the fifth seal, is that God is also attentive to our pain. God gives loving, caring attention to our pain. Verse 9. When God opened the fifth seal, no one Jesus did, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So John sees the souls of these martyred saints, those whose lives have been taken probably by these four horsemen. And they are under the altar. In the Old Testament, when you offered a sin offering on the altar, you would actually pour the blood out mostly. You sprinkle a little on top and you pour it underneath the altar. So on the one hand, this is a picture of their sacrifice being joined with Jesus' sacrifice. But more than that, it is not that they're under the altar. In scripture, there seems to be this idea that there's this like earthly altar. There's really two in the temple. There's the one where the sacrifices are made, the one where the incense is burned. But they're a reflection of this sort of heavenly altar that sits in the presence of God and where he sees the prayers and, you know, and praises of his people go up to him. And it's that heavenly altar where these people are. So they're there in the throne room of God before him. And it says in verse 10 that they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So that is not the kind of prayer that we pray in church very often. Um, And some of us might feel uncomfortable with it. But look, just put yourself in these people's place, right? Imagine a world where, um, where they are facing the reality of being killed for their faith in Jesus that friends and relatives and loved ones of theirs are dying and being taken for them for that faith in Jesus because they will not bend their knee and worship Caesar. Children are left as orphans and all of that. They look at that and they're praying for um, vengeance, for justice. Injustice in our world, the kind of injustice that these horsemen represent, right? Of humans doing terrible things to each other. It demands justice. It demands a sort of appropriate divine vengeance. You cannot watch the news, right? 
you, you cannot look at something like like sex trafficking or you know or, or, or child abuse or the sorts of like evils that exist in our world and not feel this sort of outrage that like someone should do something right it's like it's the reason that you're like give me their phone number right at least if you're a dude like that's your instinctive first response and i'll you know i'll go need out some vengeance and that's wrong scripture says but that desire for justice is not wrong it's that god's vengeance is where that comes from and then verse 11 then the saints that were martyred and crying out were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So they're told to wait. I mean, strikingly, they're told to wait until the number of their fellow martyrs will be complete, which is again sounding that theme of God's sovereignty even over this, right? That somehow within his plans there is a number of them. But... Notice also a couple of things. One, like we said, they're told to wait in the presence of God. They're in the heavenly throne room at the center of God's attention, waiting for his justice to come. And they're given white robes, right? These, that, which mark them as honored and also as righteous and set apart in Jesus Christ. And they're told to rest. They're being given rest by God in his presence, even as they long for justice. Which is to say... That even while God is not yet bringing justice to their situations, right? And if the first four seals are still happening, at the same time in this fifth seal, John is saying, God deeply cares about the plight of his people, about their struggles and pain. I mean, in essence, it's so striking to me that, like, God gives John this vision in which these people are questioning him, right? (laughs) Like, these people are saying, God, where are you? Why aren't you moving? And, like, God's the one that's inspiring John to have this vision and see this. And he's doing that because he's trying to make clear to us that that pain and that struggle that these people are feeling is appropriate and right. Here's what we need to understand. So God is sovereign over evil, like we said, and that means he's in control and has a plan for our lives, including the painful parts of them. But what happens sometimes is that some misguided Christians take that idea and then use it to pretend like, therefore, you shouldn't be in pain from those parts of your life, right? They'll just be like, oh, but, you know, don't, don't, don't worry. Just God has a plan. It's going to be fine. Just lift your chin and put on a smile. And the thing about Scripture is that while God does have a plan and is at work and is sovereign, at the same time, Scripture is very clear that it is appropriate for us to grieve, and feel the rage and pain and anguish um, of evil. And more than that, that God, in fact, dignifies and gives special attention and care to that grief and mourning. That, um, that God is, um, is putting them there before his throne. And, um, yeah, and just putting them at the center of his attention and affection. And so it is right to express your heart to God. Even as we acknowledge that he is in control, it is right for us to weep and mourn and struggle. Scripture is full of examples of such struggle. So God, we learn from this, is sovereign over evil, and he is attentive to our pain. And then there is a last point that we also get from these seals, and that is that God will bring justice. God will ultimately bring justice to this world. Verse 12. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth 
as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit. We're shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So that sounds dramatic. What's going on there? Remember, Revelation is full of imagery of the Old Testament. And in those verses, um, John is borrowing from like 10 different Old Testament passages that all describe divine judgment. In some cases, it is divine judgment of a specific nation in history. So, for example, um, Ezekiel describes God's judgment on Egypt like this. He says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud, and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you, and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord. All right? So that's about the destruction of Egypt, which happened in history. And there, the language is clearly symbolic, right? Like, that... It's not that God literally blotted out the stars in Egypt, but it's a a picture of his judgment on them. But then even within the Old Testament, you start getting these other passages that start applying that in a less clearly symbolic and broader way. So example, in Isaiah 34, Isaiah's talking about this day of judgment for all the nations, right? For the whole earth. And he says this, he says, All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So that's not just about one nation anymore in Isaiah. That seems to be speaking of all the nations and somehow the earth itself being destroyed. And here's what seems to be happening with all of those texts in the background. The point of that imagery is meant to show the reordering of creation. When it's applied symbolically in the Old Testament, it's an image of like Egypt thinks that it rules and it's God's rule over everything. And actually their whole order of creation is going to be turned on its head, right? And they're going to fall flat. That's kind of symbolically what's happening in those cases. But then that seems to become more, more literal, right? As it's then looking forward to some ultimate judgment in which creation is finally and fully reordered. Reordered in a way that leads to the destruction and overthrow of all those who would do evil. And that is the point that John's getting at in Revelation. If you pick up in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Creation is being turned on its head, reordered, because the Father and Son are coming in judgment, um, and the people of the earth are running to hide in terror. And that is a description of God's final judgment of the world. In Scripture, when Jesus returns, all of creation will be judged. All human beings will stand before God. And justice will be done. And I know we have a lot of questions about that idea. A lot of questions about the final judgment. And um, justice and hell and all of that. And importantly, um, even in this text, we should notice that judgment is falling on all human beings. Right? This isn't just about those people out there. That we have this who can stand kind of question that we're left with. I'm not going to answer all of those questions this morning. Or really any of them. But good news for you. We'll have a lot of chances in the next few (laughs) chapters of Revelation to return to those questions. And so we will work through the struggles we have about God's final judgment. But for this morning, here is what we need to recognize, which is that the final judgment is essential because it answers the question we've been feeling about God's sovereignty over evil 
and his sympathy with us as we suffer. So Asaph in Psalm 77, he says this to God. He says, Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Now first, that's a great example of the fact that you're allowed to be honest with God, right? Because that's, you know, literally God-inspired songs for us to sing. But the point of that is to express the crux of the problem emotionally for us. It's not just that things are hard right now, right? It's not just that there is pain and suffering right now. It is that in the midst of this world's darkness, it feels like it's never going to end. It seems like nothing will ever change. And the final judgment is meant to be by God the promise that evil in this world, while God is sovereignly working and using it in the present, evil in this world is not going to ultimately triumph. It is not a part of his ultimate design. And that God will destroy it, and it will be finally and fully defeated. Look, you cannot make sense of that tension between God's sovereignty and God's care and compassion for us if you don't join it with just the realization that evil men who do evil things will not continue forever. And those in power in the world who use it for corrupt and self-serving ends, they will not reign forever. And their number will come up. And every young girl whose innocence is stolen, and every young man who is beaten down and deprived of who he's supposed to be, that justice will be done for them. And the blood of every martyr will be avenged, and the rule of every tyrant will be brought to an end. And Satan will be cast out of creation and defeated and Cancer and Alzheimer's and all the afflictions of this world won't be around forever, and death will be destroyed, swallowed up in the second death. None of that means that we do not hurt in the present, right? That is still a reality that we feel. But our ultimate source of hope is that God will bring justice to this world again, and he will defeat all that is evil in this world ultimately, and that peace and wholeness will be restored, that he will not tolerate the brokenness of the world forever. And that is a hope that helps us to endure in the midst of it. God is writing a story that involves a lot of shadow and pain and darkness and conflict in the middle, but he also is telling us that the end of it involves the triumph of the good, the destruction of all that is dark, and the healing of creation. And that is good news. Of course, in all of that that we've just said about God's judgment, there's something we've kind of not reckoned with, which is that that judgment, right, isn't just for people out there, like we said. I mean, there's a sort of weightiness when we think about it. In fact, there's that question that the people ask um, as the God and the Lamb come. They say, who can stand in the face of this judgment? And that is a real question we need to wrestle with. But the good news for you is that that's really the question that Revelation 7 is about. So next week we will explore that side of the tension, saying, wait a minute, when we talk about everything evil in creation being, you know, (laughs) being judged, like, there's parts of me that are evil. What do I do with that? What do I do with, you know, those realities? So next week we will talk about that. But for now, this is the truth that I think Revelation 6 would have us learn, that God is at work in your suffering, that it is, even though he hates it within his sovereign control, That he sustains and sympathizes with you through it and grieves with you and is attentive to your hardship. And that ultimately he will bring it to an end.
That is the hope that we walk in. Let's pray. God and Father, as a great king above all gods, you are at work in the world. I confess there are times that your workings are mysterious, often, and I don't understand them. There are times that I struggle under the weight of them, but our hope is that you are working good in all of them and that you will, in the end, work good in creation so glorious that we can't even begin to imagine it. Pray that you would sustain us in those hopes. Amen.